This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Weekend political warriors, rampant speculation ongoing all week here in Michigan leading up to this coming Tuesday, March 10th, presidential primary in Michigan. But we're not going to talk about that right away. We're going to talk about certificate of need legislation. Now, this is pretty complex. We're very lucky to have the man who can explain it all to us, Senator Kurt Vanderwall. From the 35th Senate District, he's a Republican from Ludington. His district includes all or part of 12 counties in northwestern Lower Peninsula of Michigan. Senator Vanderwall, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Bill, for the opportunity to be on the show. I appreciate it. Well, explain to our listeners what is certificate of need legislation and why is this particular package of bills that I think you are sponsoring or championing necessary well here here's i'm going to try to give a real brief and hopefully it explains it well the certificate of need is a law that was put in place back in 1973 which put a commission in place that would dictate what services could be provided medically in an area so if somebody lives in one area and they wanted to bring in like an mri scanning or imaging, uh, this commission would say yes or would say no. And what's happened is over the years, our our medical, our hospitals have changed. And what's happened under the certificate of need is services have been removed from some of the hospitals, moved to main campuses. And because that hospital still owns that certificate of need in an area, there's nobody that can allow that service or offer that service. And that, so access to care has definitely gone down and uh, limited what I feel is quality of care that uh, people demand in our state. One of the reasons for certificate of need, as I have looked at it over time, is it prevents a proliferation of medical and hospital facilities, maybe in areas that don't necessarily need them, which might result in excessive competition. Is that correct? That's kind of different from what you just explained, but is that part of this too? Yes, that that is also part of it. I think, you know, in today's world, I don't see that as being the issue that it once was there for, for our small community hospitals, and that's why it was put in place, is to protect outsiders coming in and cherry-picking certain services. I think under today's world, you know, it's too expensive to offer some of these services and duplicate them. So I I don't feel that is as big a concern as what it once was. Yeah. Your district, I mean, 12 counties in northwestern lower Michigan is one of the biggest Senate districts in Michigan. You go all the way from Ludington and Mason County in the south. You go all the way up to Leelanau County. You go east into the center of the state. You must have a lot of small community hospitals. Over time, have you seen their ability to provide health and medical services diminish because of these errors or shortfalls or anachronisms in the CON uh, commission? Yes. What, what we have seen is that 
our small community hospitals have been purchased by larger hospitals, and they have actually reduced the services, moved them to their main campus. Uh, you know, I'll take uh, Munson Health. Uh, they have purchased a lot of our smaller hospitals. In, in one case, uh, Manistee County, the hospital there eliminated uh, OB. So n- now somebody that's going to deliver a child that lives in Manistee, Benzie County, Northern Mason has to make a choice of either going to Traverse City, Ludington, or all the way over to Wexford County uh, to deliver a baby. And these are some of the things that we're concerned about and, and the reduction in, in what it's done to, to hurt care, I feel, in our state. Yeah, absolutely. Munson is headquartered in Traverse City. That's outside your district. That's a long way from Manistee County. Uh, maybe it doesn't seem that way to people downstate, but it is. And uh, let me ask you, do these main hospitals like Munson that buy up these small community hospitals, do they realize what they're doing when they take away these, let's say, obstetrical uh, abilities of a small community hospital in an area like yours? They do. I, you know, I think it becomes a financial burden in some cases. We're not having, you know, we use uh, OB as one of those things. You know, there's not enough population to make that a something that they can afford to keep on that campus. You know, we we can take all different situations in different communities, but they move it because it it saves them money and it doesn't cost as much, and it's a staffing issue also. But uh, my concern with some of the CON uh, packages or things that are out there, we're not allowing competition to come in and allow these services to be done, and we're forcing people in some cases to drive well over three hours, and that's a problem. Isn't there something in your package of bills, maybe sponsored by Senator McDonald, your colleague, involving air ambulances? What's that all about? Yes, there actually is. Right now the FAA really oversees the air ambulance of what the the standards are. And in the state of Michigan, our CON is still kind of being the double double ruler over that, and they're saying, hey, we want to manage this. And basically what we've done, the CON commission wants to be out of it. Our department has failed to give the new standards so that the FAA can rule on some of this stuff and, and the CON commission doesn't need to. And what this does is get is really forcing the department to make sure these rules are put in place by October so that uh, our CON commission can uh, get out of the business and let these air ambulance uh, companies that meet the standards um, offer those services. How many hospitals are there in your huge 12-county district right now, do you think? That's a great question. I, I, <laughs> I am... Uh, I've, I've never really done it. I know that uh, we've got at least a half a dozen, and then we have some small clinics too. But, uh, you know, offering some of the services, it's, it's an issue in rural Michigan, and it affects me all through the district. And, you know, that's probably one of the number one things we hear when we, we have our monthly coffee hours is, you know, my health, uh, my health services are, are structured to a point where I'm driving to Grand Rapids or Traverse City, we need some help here. 
Has there been any effort before now to address this issue or problem? You've got a package of bills, as I understand it, maybe four altogether. You can correct me. Uh, I think you just passed them out of the Senate. Uh, is this just coming to the forefront all of a sudden now, or have there been efforts to address this issue before? There's been some discussion. There's five bills that we just passed out of the Senate. It, there has been some discussion in the past. There hasn't been an appetite to look at it um, just because it is such a paradigm shift um, in services. But there is a, a huge move right now um, throughout the chambers that we know we've got issues and we need to start addressing uh, access to care, quality of care, and cost. And all those things go into what the CON Commission is supposed to address, but the problem is with the reductions of services, it's actually, you know, it's destroyed what the CON Commission was supposed to be there for. So these five bills have all five been cleared by the Senate at this point and sent over to the House, is that correct? That is correct. We passed them out of the Senate a, uh, a week ago, a little over a week ago, and uh, they are over into the Health Policy uh, Committee over in the House. We look forward to working with uh, Representative Paul and uh, hoping to get those passed through the, uh, the House chambers and getting them onto the governor's desk. Yeah, I think he's a veterinarian from Livingston County, so at least he's got a, a doctor's degree of some sort, right? <laughs> that is correct. That's right. Listen, we could talk about this a lot more, but good luck. Senator Thank Kurt you very much. Vanderwall from the 35th Senate District, Republican of Ludington. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Same to you. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are now going to talk a little bit about Michigan's upcoming presidential primary on Tuesday, March 10th. And we're also going to get an overview about the whole situation nationally. And we are very fortunate to have somebody from outside Michigan. This is good. Uh, we're kind of all caught up in it here in Michigan. Maybe we can't see the forest for the trees, but we have got John Kuvion. He is the CEO, founder, chief cook and bottle washer for JMC Enterprises in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. John Kuvion, thanks for being with us. Good to be here today, Bill. Okay, I'm just going to ask you, what are you thinking right now with this presidential primary coming up in Michigan after the momentous Super Tuesday we just had in South Carolina last Saturday. Uh, what do you think is going on? How important is Michigan? And I think you got a presidential primary coming up in the next month. Uh, how do you look at the whole situation? So the way I look at the whole situation is this. I think that the race has rapidly co coalesced behind Joe Biden. I don't, however, want to go way out on a limb and say he's the nominee, because with several months of contests left, there's always going to be an inevitable stumble somewhere. And if you'll remember from 1988 and from 2016, Michigan was the upsetter of the pre uh, presumed Democratic nominee. So in other words, it caused Michael Dukakis to have to work a little harder in 1988 against Jesse Jackson. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton thought she was on the easy path to the nomination, and then Michigan voters had other ideas. 
Exactly. Uh, Not only did they pick Bernie Sanders over her in the presidential primary, but they went for Donald Trump in the November general election. So uh, from what you've seen of Michigan from the vantage point of Louisiana and nationally, uh, what do you think is likely to happen here in Michigan? Yeah. I'm of the opinion when I looked at the distribution of the Clinton versus Sanders vote in all of the 83 counties Michigan has, what was very interesting was how lopsided the distribution was. In other words, Hillary Clinton only won 10 counties in Michigan, and five of them were along that I-75 corridor around Detroit. So, in other words... What happened was, oh, and there was another thing, too, that was kind of part of the Michigan primary, and that was 48% of the primary vote was actually cast in the Republican primary back then because you had an active Republican contest. So fast forward to 2020, I'm of the opinion that you're going to have somewhat more than 52% of the Michigan electorate voting in the Democratic primary because, of course, Donald Trump has minimal opposition. But what's also going to be interesting is, to me, the areas that Hillary Clinton did the strongest in in 2016, I see Joe Biden now doing well there. But I also think that Biden has the potential to do a lot better outstate than Bernie Sanders did, because I'm of the opinion that the vote in those smaller counties was more of an anti-Hillary Clinton as opposed to a pro-democratic socialist type of vote. And realistically, I could only see Sanders doing strongly in Washtenaw and perhaps the county containing Lansing, because, of course, those are university counties and with a lot of state government employees. When you look at what Mike Bloomberg spent... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> leading up to Super Tuesday. I mean, staggering. And I got to tell you, uh, you may not be aware that he spent up to $10 million here in Michigan alone leading up to Super Tuesday, getting ready for this primary we're having on Tuesday, March 10th. And he did mailings. He had TV. He just saturated the state. And now, of course, he's pulled out of the race. And as you say, it really looks like it's down to Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. So what do you think people are thinking in a state like Michigan where you get this huge amount of spending and effort by a candidate who's pulled out of the race? How is that? Is that going to be just forgotten? It's a wash. It makes no difference. Or is there something going on there that we don't know about that could translate into extra votes for either Sanders or Biden? So the way I look at Bloomberg, there's really two halves of the Bloomberg equation. The first was he allowed himself to become, be perceived as rather the savior of the Democrats, because at the time, before he participated in any primaries and before he stumbled in debate twice, people all of a sudden started warming up to him as the savior who could rescue America from Donald Trump. And of course, this is Democrat think now, keep that in mind. But the problem with Bloomberg, in my opinion, is that he built up this impressive zeitgeist behind him that wasn't really supported by apps by voters. So all of a sudden, the theory of Bloomberg being this great candidate vanished quickly once he stumbled in debate. In other words, people finally got to see what he was really like relative to the other Democratic candidates. Then by his foolish decision to skip the first four contests, by the time he did show up in the contest, the Democratic contest, uh, primary contest rather, was well underway. So where I'm going with this is that Bloomberg proved to be the great mirage of 2020. And 
I do think he stirred up Democrats, but I think that now that he's out of the race, Joe Biden basically has the moderate swim lane, so to speak, all to himself, as does Bernie Sanders. And then Tulsi Gabbard might now get, you know, one or two or three percent now that she's pretty much the only viable candidate or half viable candidate left in the race. So to me, Bloomberg ended up spending a lot of money. I think where he really has the uh, potential to impact things is that he's going to keep spending money against Donald Trump going into November. There are other primary battles, I think, on the ballot on Tuesday, March 10th. Um, How do you expect those to go? Who's likely to win them? Who will have the momentum coming out of March 10th? So here's what's interesting about the other Tuesday contest. And you, you'll know when I use the word primary and caucus, that has a huge impact in terms of who's going to win. So first off, what we're talking about, including Michigan, you have five primary and one caucus state. On Two March of those 10th. primary states actually had caucuses in 2016, which Bernie won. So more specifically, we're talking about, of course, Michigan, which is a primary, Mississippi, which is a primary, Missouri, which is a primary. But here are the wild cards. North Dakota is going to be the one caucus state, which it was in 2016, and which Bernie carried back then. So I would expect he'll do well there. The remaining two states on the ballot Tuesday are Idaho and Washington, both of which Bernie carried. However, they were caucus states in 2016. Idaho has switched to a primary since then, and Washington is kind of in a weird category by itself where it had both a non-binding primary and a caucus. So Bernie won the caucus but lost the primary. Now Washington has said, let's make life simpler. Let's have just a primary. So the whole point of all this is that you're talking about several states which Bernie had a quote-unquote advantage in because they were caucuses, and now they're going to be primaries. So I realistically only see Bernie winning perhaps North Dakota because it's still a caucus. Idaho, maybe, because the Democratic electorate's so small there. But the only other state I think he could reasonably carry would be Washington. I think Biden's in the commanding position elsewhere, including Michigan. How many uh, primaries and or caucuses are there between March 10th and yours in Louisiana in early April? So basically you're talking about a series of 11, 11 contests before you get to the primary we have in Louisiana on April 4th. And so six of those 11 are going to be Tuesday. And to me, even though it's kind of thought of as a smaller version of Super Tuesday, I would say this Tuesday's contests are even more important because now that you have Biden and Sanders pretty much head to head, Sanders has to win something. And I'm not really sure that he can, or, or I don't think he could win anything substantial, which means if Biden sweeps next Tuesday, I could see pressure being put on Bernie to get out. Not that I think he would, but I think the pressure would be there. Right. Listen, we could talk some more about this. You have given a great overview of the situation politically, not just in Michigan, but nationally. John Kuvian from Baton Rouge in French, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Thank you so much. John Kuvian. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Bill. We'll be back. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. 
We have returned, and we have another subject to discuss here in the middle of the turbulence leading up to our presidential primary this coming Tuesday, March 10th. This subject is very important. It involves teaching at the K-12 public school level, and we are very fortunate to have on the other line with us Representative Cheryl Kennedy, a Democrat of Davison, just east of Flint, she represents the 48th House District, and I think that includes Clio and Davison and Montrose. These are all cities and seven townships in northern and northeastern Genesee County. Is that correct, Representative that, Cheryl Kennedy? That is absolutely correct. Good for you. Okay, I want to ask you about your legislation. I think it's House Bill 5497. You had a press conference about this press release Uh, Very important, it looks like to me. What do you think? Tell us about it. Well, you know, I uh, before I was a representative, I was a teacher. And most recently, when I retired and uh, took office, I was a middle school principal in Wald Lake. Um, And Wald Lake is is not a poor district. They have, you know, plenty of... um, of, of, of support there, and still I spent about the first two hours of my day figuring out how I was going to fill classrooms um, because of a lack of substitute teachers. We know that teachers are burning out, and a big part of their burnout has to do with not having access to their prep time, and often that prep time um, we're plugging teachers into classrooms so that they can cover because we have a substitute shortage. So not only do we have a teacher shortage in Michigan, we have a substitute teacher shortage in Michigan, and yet we have all of these professional certified teachers who um, are are sitting in our communities and wanting to come back and maybe teach not full-time, but maybe we'll teach for three or four months at a time or between a few different districts and um you know, we've already invested in them as a state. We've already invested in their human resource, their experts in their fields. And uh, our system has um, made it more difficult for them to really understand how they can come back and be a substitute teacher without it affecting their pension. Because currently the way the, the law is written, uh, teachers can only work to a certain point and then um, they would be essentially teaching for free because the uh, that money would be deducted from their pension. So there's this whole thing called unfunded liability we're worried about. We want to make sure that we're keeping the teacher pension system whole. And there was a belief in the Office of Retirement Services that if we allow teachers to come back and substitute teach, that that would be an incentive for them to retire earlier, and then they are not no longer contributing. We don't have any data to support that, and I honestly personally believe that's a false assumption. I don't believe that teachers are going to retire just to come back and sub full-time. But uh, anyway, that's the assumption that they have to make because it's their job to be conservative. So what what this law does, it allows teachers to come back and teach in an unlimited, um, in an unlimited way if they choose to, and if the school district wants a specific teacher, say if there's a first-grade teacher that's leaving because they're getting cancer treatment or on child care leave, and they know there's a crackerjack first-grade teacher who's great at teaching reading, they can invite that teacher to come and work for them. That teacher can finish out the year without it affecting their pension. Um, the kids have consistency in the classroom. We have an expert in the classroom. 
and um, the school district will pay the unfunded liability. So that's about 30 extra dollars a day to have an expert teacher in the classroom um, on a long-term basis. And it doesn't mean that you have to. It just means that now districts and teachers, retired teachers, have that option. In other words, there probably are enough substitute teachers out there in a substitute teacher population. It's just that the law has become an anachronism and is preventing them from being utilized by school districts and preventing them from wanting to go to be substitute because they're going to pay a financial penalty, right? That's exactly it. And honestly, there's a lot of misinformation out there regarding where that level is because it's become so convoluted. There have been so many carve-outs over the years. Um, so it doesn't apply to some teachers. It does, you know, so if there's a critical shortage area like special education, um, it doesn't apply to them. But if you're a math teacher, maybe it does. I mean, it's, it's really become so convoluted. It's like an eight-page flowchart just to figure out if your pension would be affected or not. And if you call the ORS on any given day, you might be given three different answers. So uh, a lot of it, honestly, has to even just come down to the, the confusion around where is that line for each individual if they wanted to come back and sub. This simplifies the whole process. It's great for ORS. They love the efficiencies that it creates because now they don't need that spreadsheet anymore. They can just say, you know, if you're a retired teacher, come on back, and they know that the retirement system will be made whole or kept whole because the district agrees that they're going to pay that unfunded liability um, so that we're not losing any money go that otherwise would be going into the uh, teacher um, retirement system. Also, when I talk to third-party contractors, most substitutes are hired now through third-party contractors, not through the district. And I asked them what their philosophy was about encouraging retirees. They never wanted to be put in a position where they could would be held um, – liable for giving misinformation about retirement and pensions to a retiree. So they just would tell them to call ORS. Um, and, and as a result, um, they felt that there were a lot of retirees who would inquire about retiring or about sub-teaching, but they never followed through because it was such a confusing process. This removes the confusion. It holds the retirement system whole, and it allows for the choice. I mean, right now, because we've lowered the standards for substitute teachers so much, you only have to have 60 credit hours of college in any kind of subject area to be a substitute teacher. So honestly, Billy Bob, who mows my lawn, you know, in the in the summer, could come in and, and teach first graders how to read. But I have a first grade teacher who's an expert in, in reading who can't come back and teach because it would affect their pension. It just doesn't make any sense. I agree. Uh, you... Representative Cheryl Kennedy, Democrat of Davison, that's who we're talking to. You serve as co-chair of the Legislative Educators Caucus. You say uh, you've studied this for a long time. You've got bipartisan cooperation uh, from other members of the caucus, including Republicans who are in the majority in the state house. How does it look in terms of getting this bill out of the House, getting it through, getting it through the Senate and to the governor? Well, the governor is in support of it. So then, as you know, it has to do with getting it in front of the committee. Um, and so currently there is a Republican who also, uh, Steve Johnson has another bill that addresses the same issue, but didn't, hasn't gone through the steps that mine has um, as far as the ORS piece and the unfunded liability piece. 
So um, I don't believe his is going to get any traction, even if it gets voted through committee. Um, I don't believe the governor is supporting that at this time. Um, it's a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the entire picture. I believe that my legislation is a more complete piece of legislation and has also broad stakeholder support. So not just um, bipartisan, but all of the educational um, uh, um, organizations are in support of it as well. There will be additional um, pieces added to this, so it will be a package. We're going to have a Republican-sponsored bill that will be added to it, which will look at a report in three years just to kind of look and see if teacher retirement behaviors have changed as a result of making it easier to come back and sub. Um, I know uh, Representative Gay Dagnago has some um, pieces that she wants to add to it that are similar to a bill that she was looking at, at creating. So. Um, when it comes to committee, we're hoping it's actually going to be a bipartisan package, not just a bipartisan bill that will improve its chances of going through committee. And that's the work that we're doing right now. We're working on trying to make it as complete and bipartisan and all-encompassing. Um, we've done the work on the front end so that we don't have to go back and do a lot of fixes on the back end. I'm hopeful that we will be able to have it in front of committee um, in the next few months. Wow. Listen, we could keep talking about this. I'm very interested in the shortage of teachers in general, uh, not just yeah. substitute teachers. We can talk about that maybe later. We'll get you back on and we can talk about that. Thank you so much, Representative Cheryl Kennedy, Democrat of Davison. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for the conversation. We'll be back. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have on the other line with us uh, Jen Iyer. She is a partner with Vanguard Public Affairs, and she is a political pundit of some prominence in Michigan, uh, particularly in Democratic politics. And we've got a primary coming up, a presidential primary on Tuesday, March 10th. Jen Iyer, thanks for being with us. Well, thank you, Bill, and happy happy Friday. <laughs> happy Friday. Four days of, I'm not going to say peace before Tuesday, but uh, oh, a, a no lot of excitement. Oh, had in the Democratic Party in Michigan <laughs> right now. <laughs> well, that's just it. I want you to tell us, uh, we've had so much happen nationally in just the last week, beginning with the South Carolina primary last Saturday and then Super Tuesday on March 3rd, this past Tuesday. Now we've got our own primary coming up on the 10th Tuesday, and there are, I think, maybe five other states that have either caucuses or primaries on the same day. Where are we right now in Michigan, and what's at stake, and what's going to happen on Tuesday? Well, I'll tell you, Democrats in Michigan, our heads are spinning right now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just nearly impossible to keep up with the rapid-fire changes that have been happening over the course of the past week and a half. Uh, I, we, are, we are at a place right now where we are trying to uh, figure out uh, where the chips are going to land. Um, and I think right now there's there's a lot that's up in the air with uh, 
with Elizabeth Warren dropping out, I think she had uh, she had quite a bit of support uh, in different uh, Democratic circles in Michigan. And uh, now we've got a race between uh, Senator Bernie Sanders and former Vice President Joe Biden, which looks like it could be pretty tight. And uh, everybody's kind of looking at the Warren supporters, wondering where they're going to go. Well, um, you've got uh, another candidate, at least, on the ballot who's still running, and that's Tulsi Gabbard, the congresswoman from Hawaii that everybody ignores. You think she's, like, less than 1% of the vote on Tuesday. She's not going to be a factor in any way, shape, or form. No way, shape, or form. Yeah. No. Well, let me ask you, uh, what about the absentee voter factor? I mean, because of the passage of Proposal 3 back in 2018, we are seeing a surge in absentee voter requests uh, and ballots being filled out and sent in, many of which now have been spoiled because of the candidates pulling out. Uh, maybe as much as 70% increase in absentee voting. Is that going to be that much of a factor in the final analysis? Is all going to do maybe inflate the numbers, but the percentage will be the same no matter who wins, Biden or Sanders? <laughs> well, that's a grand experiment, isn't it? It is. Right now, it's hard to say. I, I Just anecdotally, I hear from people who say uh, they are going to just leave their vote cast for Warren just to make a statement. Um, I probably hear quite a few more uh, planning to to go back and recast their ballot. I think some people probably won't either take the time, have the time, or probably a certain percentage aren't even aware that they can. So I think uh, we're we're just going to have to wait and see, but I, I, I don't think it's going to be enough of a factor to tip it either way. What would have happened, do you think, on Tuesday if Mike Bloomberg had stayed in the race? Do you have any sense that, I mean, his spending in this state was unprecedented. I mean, (laughs) he spent upwards of maybe $10 million. He's hired 60 staffers, and all of a sudden he pulls the plug on his candidacy. How big an impact would he have had on Tuesday if he stayed on the ballot? I mean, do you see him coming in third but not, you know, significantly close to Bernie or Joe Biden? I, I think he would have certainly garnered some votes. I, 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 I'm not sure he would have come in third, maybe fourth behind Warren. Um, but I think he would have pulled um, some votes from Biden and may have uh, tipped, uh, essentially tipped the, favor, the, the scales in favor of Bernie. Um, with him out, uh, it's going to be um, it's going to be interesting to see in Michigan uh, what that translates into uh, potentially for Biden, especially if he ends up being the nominee long term. Bloomberg didn't just spend a whole lot on advertising in Michigan. He really had a big uh, operation going. I, I, you know, so many uh, Democratic operatives uh, ended up working for him uh, because he just he was operating such a such a large um, organization here. So, and I, I, I have a hard time believing that all of that is just going to go away. Now, when you look at the candidates that have dropped out here in the last four days, I mean, the net clearly has been in Joe Biden's favor. I mean, you have Amy Klobuchar dropping out, Pete Buttigieg, Mike Bloomberg, all of whom, when they dropped out, endorsed Joe Biden. And yet, when Elizabeth Warren finally dropped out on 
Thursday, she did not endorse Bernie Sanders, even though she was viewed as the candidate in the so-called progressive lane. So, I mean, Bernie didn't even get maybe the bump from Warren's dropping out that obviously Biden did from these other candidates dropping out, right? Well, that's correct. And frankly, from what I see, again, anecdotally, I don't have any polling on this, but I talk to a lot of people. I read a lot of commentary and and uh, hear a lot of a lot of things. Uh, I, I would say I I probably know more more Warren supporters who are uh, moving over to Biden uh, reluctantly, but nevertheless moving over to Biden than to Bernie. Wow! So <laughs> Bernie might not even get Warren support, right? I mean, Biden may get most of the Warren support in addition to Klobuchar, Buttigieg, and. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, that's incredible. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think the way things look right now going forward, it's really inevitable that Joe Biden's going to be the Democratic nominee? Uh, at this point, I would be surprised if he's not. Yeah. I mean, um, and and I, I think, uh, you know, there's there's still a lot left to happen. But just the way that that the momentum seems to be going right now is certainly seems to be in his favor. You know, really, it's kind of ironic because in 2016, Hillary Clinton was supposed to be a lock for the nomination, but Bernie kept doing much better than expected. And he actually went into the convention with, you know, a big chunk of delegates, and he made somewhat of a battle out of it going up to the convention. This time, Bernie, just a week ago before South Carolina, looked like he was going to go in with a majority of delegates. And now in the space of a week, it looks to me like Joe Biden might win the Democratic nomination more easily by far than mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton did four years ago. Well, that's right. And I mean, if you look at uh, Bernie's numbers, he is performing not nearly as well as he did, even in states that he, he won again this year, including his own state. Uh, in, eight, in 2016, he took 80 percent. Uh, of the Democratic primary vote. This time he only took 50%. So I think what you're seeing is really a, 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 a sense among Democratic primary voters that they want to go with the safe, the safer option. Uh, people are, you know, it's the polling has showed that the top concern of Democrats right now is not any policy issue in particular. It is fear of Donald Trump being reelected. And that is the driving factor among the support for Joe Biden. Right. Well, let me ask you, before uh, South Carolina, Joe Biden was not thought to have run a very good campaign. I mean, to say the least. I mean, he He hasn't. He had. Well, (laughs) I'll be the first to say it. Yeah. yeah, Well, are you concerned? (laughs) Are you concerned that, yes, he may get the Democratic nomination? but that he's not going to perform as a candidate perhaps as well as a lot of the people in the beginning or even now thought or think that he would be the best candidate against Donald Trump. Maybe, you know, be careful what you wish for. He may not be. (laughs) Joe Biden is always going to be Joe Biden. And what people saw, I think, in the beginning of the campaign and even now from time to time is Joe Biden doing what Joe Biden does? You know, he sometimes makes gaps. He, uh, he, you know, isn't always 
the one with the most detailed policy plan. But what, what attracts people to him is the tried-and-true factor. He's been vice president. He's been elected many, many times uh, in, in the past. People generally have a favorable view of him. And that's, that's enough to carry the day right now when, when you're up against Donald Trump. That's a good way to sum it up. Jen Iyer, partner with Vanguard Public Affairs and a political pundit. Thank you so much, Jen Iyer, for your overview of the Michigan Democratic presidential primary situation here in Michigan leading up to next Tuesday. Thank you, Jen Iyer. Thank you, Bill. That's all for this week, but tune in a week from now. 